Well, let me remind you what uh, Isaiah says to us that Corinne read to us. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2. Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 5. Why should you be beaten any more? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. In 1952, the American author uh, John Steinbeck published a book called East of Eden. It was the story, actually, of an extended family over several generations in the United States. And as the story unfolds, the family begins to realise something deeply disturbing. They seem to be caught up in a web of misery and evil that gets transmitted from one generation to the next. Steinbeck actually found the title of uh, this novel in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve rebel against God and they in turn are banished from the Garden of Eden. And from that uh, that moment on, they they and their descendants live as, as restless wanderers to the east of the Garden of Eden, it says. Within a generation in the Genesis story, Adam and Eve's son Cain is murdering his brother Abel. In uh, that book, Steinbeck is asserting actually that we still live east of Eden. He portrays family relationships that actually self-consciously mirror the sins and failings of Adam and Eve, of Cain, and Abel. Now, as the book develops, the the characters themselves begin to recognise that they're actually repeating what's written all the way back there in the book of Genesis thousands of years before. Steinbeck's telling us something very important. He's pointing out that our, our present situation, our present troubles, were actually anticipated and spoken about thousands of years ago. Today we live in a world, as one modern book has put it, a long way east of Eden. But in principle there is nothing new in this world of rivalry and power and envy and murder. Human societies live like this ever since Adam and Eve, sometimes reforming a little, sometimes wandering further and further from that idyllic garden in a world into, into which the prophet Isaiah spoke was a time when the nation of Israel had wandered a long way, perhaps like us. Isaiah tells us at the beginning that uh, his vision, these 66 chapters, um, occurred during the reign of four kings. This is the vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. And the reign of those four turbulent uh, uh, kings was a very turbulent time. The evidence suggests actually that, that Isaiah began his ministry right at the end of uh, King Uzziah's reign. 
Isaiah chapter 6 actually seems to be Isaiah's record of his, his, his initial commissioning uh, as a prophet. We'll, we'll look at that in a few weeks' time. But he tells us there that that vision which set him off on his prophetic journey was in the year that King Uzziah died. See, Uzziah had had a long and peaceful reign in the 8th century BC. The uh, superpowers, Assyria and Babylon and uh, Egypt, were relatively weak at that time and uh, the little kingdom of Judah that Isaiah lived in and prophesied to had been relatively peaceful, it had been left alone. During that time, the nation had been quite prosperous as well. But by the time that Uzziah died, things were not looking quite so secure and the neighbours were getting stronger and showing signs of wanting to overrun them. The political leadership was, uh, was unstable as well. But in many ways, I suspect it felt a little bit like it feels like today, after September the 11th, 2001. A little bit uncertain, a little bit uh, worrying. What does the future hold? Yes, we may be rich, but the fabric of society doesn't feel quite as strong as perhaps it did a decade ago. I... Um, I've been eating out rather a lot this week, twice, uh, well actually more than that, but uh, two occasions I had uh, dinner with different friends who are not Christians. One of them is a lawyer, spends his time um, uh, dealing with the uh, government actually, and uh, he said to me, he's not a doom and gloom merchant by and large, he said to me, he feels like the fabric of, uh, uh, of government is falling apart. He looks back over 20 years now of, um, uh, of moving in those, those circles and he sees a definite decline. Another, another friend, also not a doom and gloom merchant either, who's a, um, a senior person in the caring professions in, in Oxford who we were, were having uh, dinner with, started talking to me about whether society would go into, was about to go into what he called social meltdown. It's interesting that the, the uncertain moment that we live in, in history. Well, Isaiah, perhaps uh, the most important of the Old Testament prophets, prophesied into a situation that felt uncertain and unstable. And Isaiah, actually... Uh, in this prophecy, has a great and abiding message for us. The, uh, the first 39 chapters of Isaiah tells us again and again of, of, a, of a great king who will come and rule the earth. Then Isaiah chapters 40 to 55 starts to tell us of, uh, of a, um, uh, a suffering servant who will die for the sins of God's people. And then in chapters 56 to 66, Isaiah speaks of God's final victory over all evil and his creation of a new heaven and a new earth. Well, you'll be relieved to know we're not going to study all of those 66 chapters in this series. We're just going to focus on the first 12. But again and again we will find ourselves drawn to the broader, bigger picture that Isaiah paints 
for us, of his hope for the future. And, and, and finally, again and again, we are going to find ourselves drawn to the New Testament where those things that Isaiah only glimpsed come into full focus and full flowering. For now though, this morning, we must just start to, to sketch the beginnings of Isaiah's message into Isaiah's society, a society that lived a long way east of Eden. And I have to tell Ruth, I'm afraid I changed the title for the uh, sermon series, but um, um, uh, uh, I felt that we just must call it God Presents His Case. God Presents His Case for the Prosecution in verses 2 to 4, of his beloved nation. First of all, he calls the heavens and the earth as witness. Verse 2, Hear, O heavens, listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Nature, says God, has got to witness this. The whole of my creation needs to hear the charge I have against my people. And this is my charge, he says, They have rejected me. I reared children, brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. First of all, he draws out the uh, uh, incredible ingratitude of it. God has been a father who reared them. The nation of Israel knew how once they had been in slavery in, uh, in Egypt. But God, who cared for them passionately, had heard their cries, had come down, had rescued them, had delivered them through the Red Sea from their enemies, had stuck with them and led them through the wilderness, had led them finally into the Promised Land and given them a settled and safe existence. He had nurtured them and loved them as a father loves his children. I reared them, he says. I brought them up. But they rebelled against me. More than that, there is the foolishness of it as well. Verse 3. The ox knows his master, the donkey his owner's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand, he says. Oxen in the fields ploughing the land know the voice of their masters. Donkeys in their stables know where to get their food. But Israel is more bovine than an ox. They are bigger asses than donkeys. Israel does not know. My people do not understand, he says. They're fools. And there is the bitter irony of it. We've already seen the irony of the the father rearing his children who rebel against him. But then look at at verse 4, for instance. Ah, sinful nation, a people loaded with guilt, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. That word brood literally meant seed or descendants or children. It's alluding back to a great promise that God had made to Abraham, that he would have descendants, he would have seed, he would have 
a, a family that would be as innumerable as the stars in the sky and that great family of his down through the years would be a blessing to all nations. But now I look at his broods, says Isaiah, says God, I see a brood of vipers. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Oh, there is deep irony in that. The, the Lord, the, the, the name, that name that God give, gives himself, is the name, his covenant name. His name which especially alludes to his faithfulness and his love. Moses, years before, had had a message from God that explained what that name, the Lord, meant. God appeared to Moses and he said, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. That's what the Lord means, the faithful one, the loving one. And what have they done? Been utterly unfaithful forsaken the Lord. Oh yes, and they had spurned the Holy One of Israel. Of course, God's holiness is his perfection, his, 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 his beauty, his glory. What do you do with, the, with, with, with someone who is utterly perfect and, beauty and uh, beautiful and glorious? You admire him, you delight in him, you adore him, you love him, you worship him. They have spurned me, he says. They have turned their backs on me. And sadly we have to say that is, that is our natural condition. We have turned our back on the God that we know. Of course, Israel had a, had a special and unique relationship with God, which, which in many senses we as a nation, we as a people can't say we have. But especially in the West, especially in Europe. And why not? South America, Africa as well. We have a long history of God's dealing with us. We ought to know God. But again and again I, I meet this dogma that reinterprets um, our, our Christian history, our history of dealing with God as dark and oppressive. Certainly sometimes there, there, there were dark and evil deeds done in the name of God. But God's historic relationship with us has been overwhelmingly demonstrating his character as the Lord, his character as the Holy One. In this country, Parliament was founded um, um, on Christian principles. Slavery was abolished because of Christians. Child labour was abolished because of Christians. Hospitals were founded, schools, universities, accommodation for the poor. Actually, even protection for animals was all Christian, all demonstrating in our society the character of God. 
Now our nation has been reared and brought up by God in many ways similar to the way that Israel had been cared for. But we have rebelled against, forsaken, spurned, turned our backs on God. And there are so many of us as well who just swim in that water along with everyone else. See, perhaps that's you as an individual. Perhaps, if you're honest, you can't escape. But you know who God really is. You know him to be a loving father. You know him to be a faithful one, a holy one. But you yourself have turned away from him. How does God respond to that? Well, this is how he responds. Not actually as the the ruthless prosecution lawyer. Not as the heartless judge eager just to, just, just to, to pass judgment, get, to, get, get the sentence sorted and then move on. No, God himself asks a poignant question. God himself pleads with us. Verse 5, Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. Why? He says, why when, you've, when you're totally damaged, our head that governs us, that determines what we, uh, how we live and what we do, beaten, our hearts, the very essence of who we are, afflicted, crushed, broken, damaged. Has God caused this? Well, in one sense, he is sovereign over a world that he does govern. But you know, he doesn't need to do anything in particular for this to happen. He just needs to let us rebel. And we damage ourselves. We afflict our hearts. And perhaps we thought that that flight from God would, would, would take us into the arms of another community, another people, some other situation where we would get some comfort. Oh, not so, says God, verse 6. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head there is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oils. Not cleansed, he says. The filth is still on you, not bandaged. The pain is still exposed, not soothed. There is no one committed to soothing you. That is the story of so many people that I meet. They have brought terrible damage on themselves. And they cannot find cleansing. They cannot find covering for their wounds. They cannot find easing for their pain. 
Isaiah's whole country was desolate. Verse 8. The daughter of Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a field of melons, like a city under siege. That image of a hut in the field of melons is very, very vivid, you know. If you've seen allotments, um, you, you will have seen sometimes the, the ramshackle little uh, sheds that people put up on, on their allotments. It was ever thus. To protect the melons, they used to, they used to put up little uh, temporary shelters. Well, that's what you are like, says God as a nation, as people. A little barely holding together, a little bit of shelter in the midst of a field, all alone. And only God's patience actually stops us being utterly destroyed. Verse 9, Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. And God pleads with us. God says, why must we put ourselves in that situation? But there is worse, you see. Somehow, in our, in, our, in our lostness and our desperation, we actually opt for a uh, false solution. Religion. You see, actually, the people of Isaiah's day were very religious Their life was full of making sacrifices, attendance at worship, extra special events, prayer. And God says, I actually hate them all, verse 11. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams, of fatted animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moon, sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals, your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Sacrifices mean mean nothing to God. Their attendance at worship is a trampling of his courts. Their offerings, he says, are meaningless. The incense they burn is, is detestable. Their special services I cannot bear. Their festivals my soul hates. Even their prayers, he says, I am not going to answer. Verse 15. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Even if you offer many prayers, I will not listen, he says. I will hide my eyes. I will close my ears. I want nothing to do with you. Why? It's not actually because he automatically hates all uh, religious observance. It's because one's very fundamental thing is missing. They were not really following God with their lives. Your hands are full of blood, he says. See, we still live in a very religious world, actually. Lots of people um, doing religious things. 
God's not particularly impressed. The numbers of people uh, attending the, the church here have, uh, have grown uh, over the last um, few years. God's not particularly impressed. God's not impressed with us just because we are religious. God wants changed lives. God wants passionate followers of Jesus Christ. And he makes that very, very plain as he moves on to his remedy. His remedy is repentance. Look at verse 16. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing what is wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Three strong negatives there. Wash. Remove your evil deeds. Stop. And five positives. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. Cut certain things out of your life, he says. They must go. And then turn round and begin cultivating in your life a whole set of godly, Christ-like habits. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. God is not looking for instant perfection. Learn, he says. Seek. But he is looking for people who are committed to living like Christ. Especially in Christ's concern for the outcasts. This week, uh, Cowley Road Methodist Church, which sadly does not preach the Gospel with any clarity, as far as I can tell, they're celebrating their centenary and one of the uh, things in their exhibition put me to shame. They told about um, how a hairdresser on the Cowley Road some 30 or 40 years ago had refused to allow the new um, West Indian immigrants to come into the hairdressers. And uh, they had campaigned against this on behalf of um, their West Indian friends and uh, the pastor ended up in prison for a, a night, I think. Because they cared for the oppressed. Wouldn't it be terrible if this church 
had a lesser reputation. We are thinking about uh, starting a fair trade store, um, um, both to give church members opportunity to buy more fair trade things, but also um, hopefully to open something that, that allows the public in East Oxford to buy fair trade items. You know, that's very important in God's sight. Not that doing those things saves us, but if there is not that sort of real concern for underclasses, then we cannot really expect our prayers, our worship, to be anything but an offence to God. And then something surprising happens in this chapter. God uh, challenges them to be challenged and we must be challenged. But then it almost looks as though it's still not going to be good enough. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord, verse 18. Or actually, um, literally, um, this is an invitation to come, come, come to a court case. Come on, let's hear your case for the defence, says God. And anyone who is at all sensitive about their own hearts, who has in any way been pricked by uh, God's accusations in these uh, uh, early verses, will rightly shudder. So even if I start now to be a different person, how could I possibly stand before the Holy One of Israel? the perfect God and expect to receive anything but rebuke. But then God brings a complete surprise to us. Let's have a court case, he says. Because I want to formally acquit you. I still want to forgive you. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Scarlet and crimson were both lurid but indelible. They can't be got off the clothes. They can be by me, says God. I'll make your clothes white again. I'll make you as pure as the driven snow again. I'll forgive you. All you have to do is turn to me. How is he going to forgive them? There is no explanation here. But as the book of Isaiah unfolds, it becomes increasingly clear because in the later chapters of Isaiah, a servant figure appears. And finally, that servant dies for the sins of God's people. He was pierced 
says Isaiah, for our transgressions. He was wounded for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. See, Jesus actually suffered a long way east of Eden. Jesus was alone and deserted and without God on a hillside. Jesus even died a terrible and lonely death. Not because he deserved to be banished from the Garden of Eden, but because he took our punishment so that we can return to God's presence. So that despite the fact that we have never done enough, God can say, though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Now in John Steinbeck's novel, one of the characters becomes absolutely obsessed with Genesis chapter 4 verse 7. Cain, before he murders his brother, is warned by God, sin, this is the King James, sin lieth at your door. Unto thee shall be his desire and thou shalt rule over him. Is this a promise of victory over sin? Thou shalt rule over him? Is this as the American Standard Version says that um, do thou a command, you must rule over sin? In uh, Steinbeck's novel, the interpretation of that comes down to one word, one word that the character desperately wants to understand, the Hebrew word called, um, which uh, Steinbeck uh, transliterates, Timshel. The character studies Hebrew for two years to understand this word, Timshel. And finally, he decides it's neither a promise, you will defeat sin, nor a command, you must defeat sin, but a possibility. Thou mayest rule over it. With that in mind, the character says, I felt that man is a very important thing, maybe more important than a star. As the story unfolds though, they do not defeat sin. The story ends with the father, actually called Adam, lying on his deathbed with his son Cal, who has caused the death of another brother, longing for forgiveness. The father manages just to raise his hand and say, Tim shall. You may overcome sin.
The Bible says something much, much more positive. The Bible says God has overcome sin. The Bible says God the Son, Jesus Christ, died on the cross for sin. The Bible promises that God the Holy Spirit can come and dwell in our hearts and change our hearts so that we are able, able to, to do those three negatives. Wash, stop, take away and start those positives. Seek, learn. And that on the last day, you will not have a feeble God raising his hand and saying to us, Tim shall, you may or may not defeat sin. But we can go to that God and we can say, Jesus died for my sin. Where, oh, uh, death is your victory. Because death will not defeat us and separate us from God. But for those who have trusted Christ, it will be the door opening to reconciliation with God, no longer east of Eden. Now what does that mean for you? Let me just say one thing. It makes not the slightest difference that you have sat and listened this morning. Not the slightest difference that you have sat and understood. The only thing that counts is that we turn to God we say to Jesus Christ, I will follow you. And we seek his forgiveness. Then we are secure. Then we do not need to live east of Eden.